Once upon a time, there was a canoe and a river. The river flowed along the eastern seaboard of Canada. It was a very special river. This is the, uh, the Wolostuk River, and that's where the name of our nation comes from. The people here on this river are known as the Wolostuk and what that means is people of the beautiful river. And that's what the river is called, Wolostuk, beautiful river. This is a sacred river, and the canoe in our story is also a very special one. I mean, we had to travel, like, prior to colonization, Native people engaged in trade with other Native tribes all the way down the eastern United States up until up, up to uh, Ontario. 200 years ago, the canoe I want to tell you about travelled these waters. But it's a cargo canoe. It's about five feet longer than the average size of a canoe. This canoe would be capable of carrying a full thousand pound moose with no problem down the river if it had to. Story has it, one day the canoe was stolen. It just disappeared. And two centuries later, its loss is still a talking point. This canoe belonged to us. We have our oral history that proves it. Our elders are still talking about this 250 years later. It was taken. It was taken, taken from our community here. And they believed it was gone for good. So do you know what the Geology Museum is? Is it somewhere in there? Yeah, in there and up the stairs, yep. Okay. Just in there and through that glass door and then straight up the Thanks stairs. Thanks for that. That's great. Almost 200 years later, the canoe was discovered. The Wolustaquiak people, sometimes known as the Maliseet, were to discover that their sacred object had become a home for pigeons. Yes, pigeons could have got in and could have resided in it and perhaps there were fledglings flinging around there at times because, again, uh, those very big windows, they would have been opened uh, probably because in the summertime it would have been really seriously hot in here. The Wolustaquiak would have to get out maps of the world and seek out where Galway was located. It was uh, not in great condition up there, but then again, we couldn't really see it very well. The Wolostaquiak would learn that their canoe was now 3,000 miles east at NUI Galway, hanging from the rafters in the oldest part of the building, suspended from a high ceiling and out of plain sight. It had been there for about 150 years. And hanging on from the roof was a canoe. Very unusual that such a, an object should be hanging from a, a ceiling, but uh, there it was. Where it might have been stored before that, I just don't know, but when I came to college here, that's where it, it was located. Curiosity, really, uh, up there in the ceiling, but safe, nevertheless. This canoe, the one in our story, the one that ended up hanging in the middle of nowhere in Galway, is the world's oldest birch bark canoe. It was made by Wolustaquiak boat builders. You heard them paddling earlier on the St. John River, the place they've called home for thousands of years. Now, things we could see were uh, that the painters were writing their names on it 
uh, when they were up painting the ceiling and we understand when it came down from there that there were a lot of pieces of paper and a lot of other things in the canoe but uh, the only people who could see the canoe properly really were the painters when they were up that high because it's a very very high ceiling in this old part of the university and fortunately for that that it was such a place and that this wonderful uh, artifact could actually be stored up there safely. The Wollostoquiaq wondered, like many people in Galway, how it ended up there. But most importantly, the Wollostoquiaq wanted it back. To try and understand the importance of the canoe, I need to go back to the beginning. The starting point of this story is the river. I'm on the river today, the Wollostock, with descendants of the original boat builders. The canoe is so large it has to be dragged to the water. My Maliseet name is Ablossomwes, which means Moon of the Whirling Wind. My English name is Imelda Pearly. And uh, we're in the territory of the Wollastukuk. The, um, the first uh, language of the land is Wollastuk. And of course, um, across, around the world, people will know the territory as, you know, um, the Maliseets. When Champlain arrived in our territory in the 1600s, um, he named the river Fleuve Saint-Jean the Baptiste in, in commemoration of the uh, Feast of Saint-Jean the Baptiste. He never asked my ancestors, what's the name of this beautiful river? He just assumed we didn't have a name for it and therefore named it Fleuve Saint-Jean the Baptiste. And then when the English were the second ones to arrive, the English and the French obviously fought over territorial space and when the English won that particular battle, the English felt that Fleuve Saint-Jean the Baptiste was too long of a name for a river, so they compromised and called it St. John. Again, not asking my ancestors, what's the name of this beautiful river? I've always known it, I'm 65, I've always known it to be Wolastuk. Wolastuk means beautiful and bountiful. It provided our food, our medicines, our trailways, and our, um, you know, just our life. In 1825, an Irishman navigated these waters. His name was Stepney St. George. He was a lieutenant with the British forces in Canada. The St. George family lived at Hedford Castle in County Galway and owned a vast estate there. So when the American Revolution was over and the, um, the, the loyalists to the crown um, escaped New York and came to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, well, it was all Nova Scotia at the time, and um, settled here, it, it had already been marked off and all they had to do was to escheat the, the original landowners who hadn't done anything and hadn't followed the terms of their grants to settle these territories. So um, these people just walked in, all the officers got huge 
portions of these lands and um, and our people were oblivious to this until this massive wave of people coming in to take our land and some people have said we fled like deer being chased because we were we were being driven away at the point of a gun in many places that we had traditionally camped and um, you know we, our people were struggling on the home front with survival and, and in our survival dependent on having access to the water and now all of a sudden we can't even get to the water in many places. So yeah, we were like deer pursued, um, literally at that time. Around this time, Stepney St. George was part of the British colonial presence in this part of Canada. We don't know what his role was or what he thought of the native people, but around this time, the canoe disappeared. Feels good to be out on the river. I mean, there's been times in my life where I've gone away from Fredericton Whenever I go on vacation or, you know, to a different place, whenever I come back to Willistaguig territory here, I always have a big sense of appreciation of the beauty of this river. Here on this river, there is a spot where the tide from the Bay of Fundy causes the waters to turn. It was from here that the canoe was stolen in 1825. Wow, that looks nice. At this time, Stepney left Canada. He returned to manage the family estate in Hedford. When he came home, he brought the very large Wollostoquia canoe with him. There are descriptions of Hedford in the 1790s, which, you know, and they're from Richard St. George, Mansara St. George, uh, Stepney's father, which would, you know, they would raise the hairs on your back because of the depths of poverty. He says they're living in huts that are not habitable by swine. Geraldine MacDonald is a historian with a special interest in the St George family. And yet by the 1820s and 1830s, all of the reports that you get from the sources, you know, and it can be Healy Dutton, it can be the Almanacs, it can be all sorts of different sources, say that Hetford is a very good town and that St George is a model landlord and that he tries to improve both the town and his castle. It's quite interesting that the entrance to Hedford Castle actually opens out from the main street. So, in other words, what it seemed to me was that the town and the landlord family were inextricably entwined in that period. In spite of all this, Stepney's return to manage the Hedford estate would be a disaster. The castle that housed the canoe was about to crumble. The potato famine would soon arrive and it would take a toll on many lives. By all accounts, he tried everything in his power to keep his tenants alive. He's obviously a very kind, very conscientious, very honest man. Um, that's what emerges from the sources. Both because if you think of the local newspapers, they don't like his politics, you know, but they are forced to admit that he's the most kind-hearted and zealous of people and that he will help his neighbours and his tenants, you know, until he's virtually beggared themselves. He even goes as far as to say, you know, I've slaughtered my prize bull. And you see, you might think that's a sort of funny thing to say, but his prize bull will have been key to his 
herd of cattle. But obviously he's down to slaughtering his cattle in order to feed the people of Hetford. One of his last acts was to write a letter saying that disease was rampant in Hetford and that people were dying in the streets. Stepney himself died a short time later. The canoe was by this time mouldering in a crumbling ruin. When the Hedford estate was dissolved, the canoe was donated to Galway University. For 150 years it hung from the rafters. Outside that room, history flowed on. Revolutions were hatched, wars were fought and a new state was formed. Throughout all of this, the canoe just hung there ignored by the countless people who pass beneath it. We're in the James Mitchell Museum because we're in the site uh, of the storage of the, can the canoe, which was hanging from the ceiling in this building. Very high ceiling, as you can see here, Joe. And it was probably uh, safely carried here because uh, the old building here would have had no insulation, single glaze windows, and there would have been a degree of sort of dampness here which would have been friendly to the actual uh, canoe, which was a very important artefact uh, which had arrived here to UCG, Queen's College, as it was known at the time in the 1800s, safely up there because it couldn't really be vandalised except by pigeons and so forth who would fly in here from time to time. This is Dello Collier, graduate of the university and chairperson of Galway Civic Trust. It was inevitable that someday, someone would look up long enough to consider the canoe and ask, what is that? Uh, when I was president of the Graduates Association, the university asked me as president and I was chair of the trustee group, uh, asked if we could fund uh, a condition report for the examination of the canoe. So that's where this canoe story started. So it was a matter of getting a, a suitably qualified person to do a condition report and to bring forward the story of this canoe and just to evaluate its importance in the scheme of things from a heritage point of view and from its own in integrity. Local academics realised that they had something special hanging from the ceiling. They suspected its age and that it was Canadian. But that was all they knew. They needed an expert. And there was a museum in Ottawa uh, that uh, there was a conservation expert there, Paul Luzan, I think was his name. So it was decided anyway uh, that he would be the person who would come because he would have the, you know, the background from the other side. And he duly came, spent about a week here. He was really, really seriously excited about it, that this was a wonderful find uh, and he then took his report and went back to Canada and it was decided that the canoe should be taken down from the ceiling here and that it should be transported out and that it should be sent to Canada. The canoe was eventually returned to Ottawa but no one was going to tell the Willis de Quique. Wayne Brooks comes from a long line of canoe builders. 
I went to meet him on the Willustaquiuk Reserve. He tells me about the first time he saw the canoe. It was on CBC Hourly News. I was, I was in bed. My wife was on working on her computer, and um, she hollered for me. And I said, what, what? And so I just, so I came out of the bedroom and came to see what. She said, you missed it. And so she said, wait, it'll come on again. So I actually waited another hour. And when it came on, I said, wow. Wayne's son, Patrick, hunts to find a Wi-Fi signal strong enough to play me a YouTube clip telling the canoe's story. Oh, here we go. The grandfather of Wheaton uh, came to Canada in 2007, February, and it came to the Museum of Civilization in Ottawa, and it was here for restoration. And the grandfather of Wheaton goes back a long time before that. Uh, in 1825, we learned that it was taken from uh, the Willustook, St. John River, and it was taken by a, a military official by the name of Stephanie St. George. And he was stationed here in Fredericton at the time. And uh, what we understand is that when he left to go back to Ireland, he took three birch bark canoes with him. And the grandfather of Wheaton is one of these three birch bark canoes. Uh, from what we understand, the other two, um, nobody seems to know where, what, uh, what happened with them. And uh, for a long time, the grandfather canoe had no significance in Ireland. Uh, after Stepney St. George took it there to his castle, which was named Hedford Castle, he, uh, the Irish famine occurred. So he used his estate to feed the people. And, uh, and I guess he bankrupted his family estate, and uh, he eventually died of the famine as well. And I was very emotional when I seen that, and I was talking, thinking about my dad and stuff, and then I said, I'm going to get right on this. I'm going to call the National Museum. And I spoke with the curator, um, Paul Lazon, and he was the guy in charge of the museum, and he had sent a couple of people over. And I said, well, this canoe belongs to our community. This canoe was taken from the Willister, just outside of our community here, and taken over to Ireland on a tall ship. When I got right on it, and uh, we never stopped. Duly elected Chief Candace Paul of St. Mary's Maliseet First Nation vows that one of her priorities as chief will be to secure the return of a 200-year-old birchbark canoe known as the Aquitan, or Grandfather Canoe, into the... The Willustaquiuk brought their campaign to both TV and radio. OK, that's, this is my place. Uh, it's a stone house, which is unusual in downtown Fredericton. There are only about half a dozen of those houses downtown. As you can see, the rest of the road is made of... One listener in particular was to advance the canoe's cause. Although now a resident of Fredericton, Jerry McAllister hails from County Monaghan. And uh, here, uh, as is the custom in Canada, we take off our shoes. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in Canada takes off their shoes. Oh, I hope I haven't got a hole in my sock. <laughs> uh, we'll forgive you for that. Uh, it's because of the winter, obviously, because the winters are so wet, snow and so on, slush, so... I'm Jerry McAllister. I came to Canada 10 years ago. I took early retirement from teaching and moved here with my wife to Fredericton. 
And uh, I was listening to the news in the house here one morning and Chief Candice Paul of the Malisee people came on. She had just been elected chief and she said uh, one of her primary goals was to get the canoe, what they call the grandfather canoe, Aquedon, back from Ireland. So myself and Susan O'Donnell contacted her and offered to put her in contact with people in Ireland whom we felt might be of help to her. So a committee was set up, four or five people, myself, Susan, Wynne, Kim Brooks and uh, Andrea Bear-Nicholas from the Tobique First Nation, which is north of here. And we drafted a letter and we targeted, I forget, maybe 12 or 15 people whom we thought might be helpful. People like newspaper editors, politicians, that kind of person, uh, Mayor of Galway, that kind. And we sent it off and we expected it to be a long haul, we were thinking in terms of years, and... Uh, it turned out to be a very short haul. We got one marvellous break. Lorna Siggins and the Irish Times decided to run with the story. I first came to hear about the canoe because I uh, got a letter from New Brunswick in Canada and it was from the Maliseet community. And I get a lot of emails, letters in this job, but uh, something um, it's just something about the canoe. I used to canoe myself. I love being on the river. I love the smell of the river. I love the sound of the river. I took up rowing after canoeing and just a mention of a canoe. So I did a report for the paper and it's always a bit of a hit and miss with these sort of things. You never know whether it's going to float somebody's boat in Dublin, to excuse the pun, because I'm based here in Galway. And you know, sometimes they might think, oh, what's she going on about, you know, an old canoe? But um, they liked it. And what was even better was that uh, there was a photograph of the canoe halfway up the stairs of one of the buildings in the quadrangle in Galway and it was taken uh, from above looking down on the canoe with people struggling to negotiate this canoe round the stairwell and they used that on the front page of the paper. And it was a front page story in the Irish Times which caused shock horror, we couldn't believe it. So. It was a story in Ireland. It became a story then in Canada. It was on the media across Canada. And, of course, a big story here locally. And, you know, within days, people were calling us up, various media people and from Ireland, from here. And the thing took off from there. And I said, this is what we've been working on. We've got the support of the government of Canada. We have all the supports of all the chiefs across Canada. And we had full support of all the chiefs. And I had support of the government of New Brunswick. Uh, <clears throat> city, the mayor, Minister of, Minister of Indian Affairs. Wayne and the elders travelled to see the canoe all the way to the museum in Ottawa. I wanted to do an actual smudging, you know, sprinkling of the water and the smudge. And she said, you're not allowed to do it. I said, you know something? It's not yours no more. It's ours. It's in our territory. It's back home. And I said, now you have to step back and let us continue. And there was a couple other elders with me that did the ceremony. And even, even uh, taking it out of the crate, she would not let us touch it. And they had their own curators in the museum, all white gloves and everything, taking it out and carrying it in through the big window. They wouldn't, and there was quite a few elders, elderly elders here, were there from the different communities and they were quite upset over that. Neither Wayne or those elders were allowed to touch the canoe that day.
But it is important because, you know, when you think about Aboriginal cultures in Canada nowadays, you know, the, the idea and the goal has always been to assimilate us into, you know, modern culture. We are somewhat, but there's still a high level of resistance and feeling within our spirit here and in our hearts that, you know, we're not going to assimilate to be Canadians. We want to hang on to our way of thinking, our culture, you know, and uh, a future that is determined by, you know, what we feel is good for our people because we hang on to, you know, our sovereignty, you know. We recognize the Wolastuk-Weak nation as a nation upon itself with a you know, separate language, we have a land base, we have a culture and traditions that go back thousands of years, a lot longer than you know, the, uh, the age of Canada. Space. You look at the culture of our people on this land, you know, well, on this river, when we talk about just us as Wolastuk-Weak, the, the, the minimal verifiable amount of time that they have evidence that we've been here is 13,000 years old, you know, through carbon data. But when we think about our existence here, we say that we've been here since time immemorial, and which is thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So we hang on to that. All the while the Wolostoquiak were running their campaign in Canada, they were unaware that they had a high-profile champion in Ireland. At the time when I saw the canoe first, it was near the rafters, I think, of the geology building on one side of the square, in the quadrangle in what was then University College Galway, now the National University of Ireland Galway. Its particular placing was, was clever, because it was near the roof, and I think the atmospherics meant that it didn't deteriorate. President Michael D. Higgins was a previous student and lecturer at the university. It wasn't an incidental, it was an important issue, for example, uh, to make sure that the canoe, if and when restored, would be able to be conserved for future generations of the Maliseet people. It had been the practice of the Maliseet people uh, to name their canoes as vessels into which the souls of ancestors ancestors had been poured. I think that was my original thinking very, very much, is that objects like this are in the first instance of first importance in a heritage sense uh, to the people for whom they're carrying spiritual significance. Politics on both sides of the Atlantic were finally coming together for the Wolostoquiak. Like the waters up from the Bay of Fundy, the tide was turning in their favour. There were celebratory scenes last evening in St John when what is believed to be the world's oldest birchmark canoe was placed on public display at the museum there. Yes, we were present the day it came in and it was extremely moving. Uh, all of the Maliseet people, well, a good number of the Maliseet people were there. Candace Paul was there. Uh, uh, it was unloaded from the big truck and immediately the drumming started outside and the chanting and the singing. And uh, we all carried the canoe into the museum. We danced around it. There was a dance for about an hour. There was singing, there was chanting. It was very moving, actually. Very moving experience. One of the most moving experiences of my life, I would say, to see that this meant so much to these people. It's called the Agu- the Agu- the Grandfather Canoe. 
And, you know, we all can re relate to the grandfather. It's a very stoic, very important role in our culture. And I think that we could all um, think of the, the craftsmanship, the work that went into that canoe uh, when it was being built, you know, and to honor the people that to, that put that together and, and to bring it home was, was very moving, very moving. You know this one? Yeah, yeah I want to get it going. <laughs> okay, okay. Hey, hey, There was a ceremony in the museum and uh, various speeches were made and the link was made with Ireland and about Ireland's colonial experience and that kind of thing, that the Maliseet had, had experienced something similar to the Irish people with the British. And so there were, there were, there were cultural links made and uh, it was very moving. Edgy Willie Dawsey, um, Ellie Gillowal, Ellie's Monarch, Gizzy Milkiek, you'd Muslim say Guiden, um, Neil Unich, Slaki and Dabaji Milanen, Yud Gelowak Milwagen Chiwiliwan. What I said was, I'm so happy, we are so happy that you, the Irish, you and the Irish people have given us this beautiful grandfather canoe. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. We we um, um, we prepared. We had some speeches to to give too at the time, but it was it was. I mean, it's hard to describe. I mean, you, you just fill up with such um, emotion um, to know that this is how many almost two centuries ago that this canoe um, left the, the hands of our our own people, and um, we yeah. It, no words to describe it. It was just a fantastic event. Of course, like a, like a child, a lost child coming back to you. So, yeah, struggling to find the right words, but it was it was a really powerful day, very memorable. I was asked to play some music to symbolize the passing of the canoe from Ireland to go so I played a slow air uh, on the tin whistle. Every time he played it, uh, somehow it, that's what really broke me up. I mean, I felt tear, you know, moved to tears. Uh, I might try it the other whistle. somehow it just just the the joy of 
the Irish generosity creating this event for us. I, it, somehow it was even more moving to hear Jerry play that tin whistle than to hear our own elders giving prayers and, and, and um, speeches of, of joy. It, 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 just, it was just like, I mean, it, in a way it, it symbolized uh, Jerry and Susan and the Irish people's um, incredible gift that this this whole that made this all possible um, we envisioned years it's still not, right. not as good as I'd like it but... they studied the construction of the grandfather canoe they had never seen its like before its sinews, its strength, the way the bark was moulded, the way black spruce roots were threaded along its length, holding all in place. It was lost art, and Wayne and his sons were determined to unlock the secret of all they saw. Yeah. One of the biggest. Okay, so, you're the, you're the master craftsman. No, we both of us are. Okay, both of us are. Would you mind describing it for me? Sure, um... It's based on the measurements off of the grandfather of Wheaton. Um, we meticulously took all the measurements and then, you know, did a lot of calculations into it. And, uh, you know, this is the form that we've come up with after. And from, you know, we put them side by side to each other and, you know, they're pretty, pretty identical to, you know, it was a great, you know, the way it was... Uh, Built back 250 years ago, you know, it's a great representation of it. So, could you describe how it is actually made? How it's actually made? Well, it starts off, you know, like we have to go out and hunt for the bark. You know, we just can't go out and buy the stuff and, you know, go to any hardware store or anything like that. Um, there's a lot of hours and a lot of, you know, scouting over a lot of territory to find the bark itself. You know, so we've checked hundreds of trees itself just to find the one tree that's suitable enough for the canoe of this size and uh, it took us four days to find this tree out in the bush and uh, yeah well this is two two trees itself just to make this one canoe quite a few bits of trees inside of here this is all made of clear cedar inside of here with uh, hardwood thorts inside that are holding the main frame together and uh, black spruce roots right here those are black spruce roots. You know, it's probably a good two days of digging up roots out of the, out of the ground for for this canoe. In a sense, you know, the way that they make canoes like this over here, they start from from the inside and build it out. We start from the outside and build it in, and that starts right with the bark itself. You know, like we lay this sheet of bark out. It's got to be heavily soaked. Use a lot of water and stuff like that to massage the bark into its form, and then. Right after that, uh, lots of hot water. Lots, yeah, exactly. Lots of hot water, and then you know, we start forming the canoe from there. We don't build the frame of it inside. We start forming from the outside, working our way in, and adding all the components into the canoe inside of it. From what and you see bark, here, the bark with the use of the hot water, the bark once it cools, it holds its memory. It holds its shape. You can even like making birch bark baskets. You soak it in hot water and. You hold it in the shape that you require before you start stitching it, it'll stay there. 
because of the oils that are within the bark, the waterproofing. And the bark dictates what the canoe is going to look like also. You know. In respect for the original, they named the replica Grandmother Canoe. The next thing was to float it on the river. Like the Irish, the Willustaquiach liked to turn an event into an occasion. They carried the canoe to the water on their shoulders and cheered when it floated like a feather on the water. We had other, other friends, other canoe builders come and they brought their canoes to greet and to honour the, gram- the grandmother canoe because of its first launching. We had Mi'kmaq Canoe from uh, Nova Scotia come up, a good friend of ours, who was a canoe builder in the Mi'kmaq style. And um, we had Paz McQuaddy and Penobscots come over. And we had about what? How many? About maybe nine, nine canoes at the launching ceremony. And this was the first to be carried in honour. And we carried it from here because we, we actually built it, built it right here. And we had the gathering of people here, and we paraded it from the house right through the community, right down to the river, to the Willistook. And we set it up, and we had different speakers come in from the different communities to speak and to honour the Grandmother Canoe. And it was fantastic. And also we had to honour our grandfather, who had just passed, because we, we were struggling with doing the launching or doing his uh, funeral, but we decided that he was, would like us to do this first, and we honoured him also with the grandmother canoe. It means a lot more to the Wollastogweek here in, on, in this territory than it may mean to, you know, sitting at the University in Galway. As we continue to, you know, work on developing the story, developing the teachings, get ready. You know, someday we hope to be able to present all of our work back to the world, back to the folks of Ireland, you know, and and have a formal, you know, maybe get together and say, you know, we're grateful for your cooperation in allowing this artifact to come back to our people, and we're going to show our gratefulness back again sometime, when when the time is right. In gratitude, the Willustaquiach wished to offer a replica to Galway. The original Grandfather Canoe is now safe at the Beaverbrook Museum in Fredericton, right at the heart of Willustaquiach territory. For Wayne, its journey back to them awakens thoughts of generational heritage. My dad, like he always talked about canoes, and my older, one of my older brothers, we attempted many, many years. We were just young to build a scale canoe, and we we quit midway. But uh, but my dad told us, you know, you got to stick to it. When you when you start something, stay on it until it's done. And when I seen that on CBC, my first thoughts was my my dad because he was commissioned to do repairs for the museum many many years ago in St. John. And he always shared those stories with me. And he was the one, and he still is today, and just like I am for my boys. And uh, they all carry that on, and hopefully my grandsons will do the same and pass it on also, because it was passed on to me by my father and his father and so on and so forth. And that's all part of life. That's it.